It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We've been working our way through the book of Mark, and we get to a place in the narrative of the crucifixion. Place in the narrative of the crucifixion. Now, the crucifixion of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus is such, such a weighty subject matter that we decided to do two things. First, we decided to lean into the other gospel writers as well in looking at it. And we decided to cover this narrative of the crucifixion by looking at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. By looking at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. When we put all the gospel writers together, when we look at all the gospels, what it shows us is that Jesus said seven different things on the cross. And so for seven weeks starting this week, we're going to look at these sayings of Jesus. Now, focusing on the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross is important because when a loved one is dying, you want to pay attention to the last things that they're going to say, right? When a loved one is dying, you want to pay attention to what they're going to say with their last words, with their dying breath. They're not going to just say something flippant to you. They're going to say something that they truly mean. They're going to say something that they truly want you to remember and know. When cancer had wrecked out my mom's body and she had barely enough energy to say anything, and we met with each other and we knew it was the very last time that we're going to see each other, she said this to me. She said, I'll see you later. She said, I'll see you later. And I knew exactly what she meant by that. Her last words are precious to me. And here we have the last words of Jesus. Another reason why looking at the seven sayings of Jesus is important because in the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, in essence, what we see is this seven things that Jesus is accomplishing and fulfilling on the cross. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at all of that, but let's get to it. What was the first thing, first saying of Jesus on the cross? Well, as the crowds are mocking him and scoffing him, as his loved ones have abandoned him, as the Roman soldiers are nailing him to the cross, as people are gambling for his clothes, the scripture says, as he is put out completely and openly in shame, Jesus on the cross, the first thing that he says is this, Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What we're seeing is that Jesus is accomplishing forgiveness on the cross. And I want to tell you the main point of the sermon here at the very beginning. The main point of the sermon is this. Christians, you have been forgiven by God. Christians, you have been forgiven by God. And what do you feel when you hear that? What are you thinking when you hear that, that you've been forgiven by God? Uh, do you think, well, that's nice, but there's really not anything in my life that needs to be forgiven? Or do you think, thank you, God, for forgiveness. You know, I think overall I'm a good person, but every now and then I really do mess up. And so uh, thank you that you offer me forgiveness in those times. Or do you say, amen, I can't believe it. Can you believe it? He's so holy. 
He's so righteous, and I'm such a sinner. With every intent of my heart, I'm failing him, but he forgives me. Can you believe it? Do you say along with the psalmist, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Is that what you say? How do you feel, church? Let's be honest. You can be honest. If, if I were being honest, I would say that I know theologically the third one to be true. But oftentimes what my heart feels is the second one. You know, theologically, I know it's true that God is infinitely holy. I'm infinitely a sinner. And there's an enormity of a gap that exists between me and God that needs to be bridged by his forgiveness. I know that theologically. But oftentimes, I'm, as I'm walking around, I feel like, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, I sin like everybody else, but I'm not walking around doing terrible things. Well, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with that? The problem with that is if we feel like we've been forgiven little, the Bible says we're going to love little. We're going to forgive little. But instead, if we know that we've been forgiven much, we're going to love much. We're going to forgive much. And so the main point of the sermon is this more specifically. Christians, you have been forgiven by God. And to the extent and the depth that you know and feel forgiven by God, you're going to be able to forgive others. Christians, you've been forgiven by God. And to the extent and the depth that you know and feel you've been forgiven by God, to that extent, to that depth, you're going to be able to forgive other people. We live in a broken world. And if you live in this world for any length of time, you're going to be wronged. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be sinned against. Some of you in here have been wounded, and your wound, it runs deep, right? You've been wronged. You've been, you've been sinned against, truly sinned against. And what are we to do with that? What do we do with our being wronged? What do we do with it when we're sinned against? Well, Jesus is going to offer us the answer today. He's going to offer us the answer today. You ready for it? Jesus calls us to forgive. He calls us to forgive. Forgiveness, not vengeance. Forgiveness, not retribution. Forgiveness, not getting even. Forgiveness. It sounds so simple, and yet it's so hard to do, right? It even sounds wonderful, but it's so difficult. C.S. Lewis once said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. So true, isn't it? Well, how can we do it? How can we forgive? We'll only be able to forgive, truly forgive, if we've been forgiven. If you've never been forgiven, you'll never be able to forgive. It's an impossibility. To the extent and the depth that you know you've been forgiven, to that extent, to that depth, you're going to be able to forgive. And so it all seems to hinge on this one point, right? How do we deal with the wrongs? How do we deal with being hurt? How do we deal with being sinned against? Well, if we're going to be able to forgive, we're going to have to know and feel the extent and the depth that we've been forgiven by God, right? It all seems to hinge on this. 
And so let's do that. Let's look deeply at the first saying of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What do we see? We see, first of all, that it's a prayer. Right? You guys see that? Simple enough. We see that it's a prayer. It's a prayer to God for our forgiveness. And it's already impressive, isn't it? Jesus is going through the hardest, the toughest, the most painful thing that he has ever had to endure. And what is he doing? He's praying. He's praying. And if that's not impressive to you, look at what he's praying for. In times when when the things are most difficult, when we feel the most wronged or persecuted, when we feel the most amount of pain, we have a great tendency to take on a woe is me mentality, right? And focus only on ourselves. You know, when times are good and, and you feel healthy and you have a good paying job, maybe you'll look at others and their needs and, and try to help them and meet their needs. But what about when times are bad? You know, when, I, when I'm sick, and I wake up one of those mornings and you're like, I'm, I'm sick, nasty today. I can't do anything today. The last thing, the very last thing on my mind is, gee, I wonder in what way I could be a blessing to my wife and children. That's the last thing on my mind. In fact, when I'm sick, everything that my wife and children do irritate me, right? Are they laughing out there? Are they playing? Are they laughing and playing in the other room? I'm wasting away and dying in bed and they're laughing, the nerve. My children should come in, they should bow down before me. They should say, oh, blessed Father, how unimaginable your pain. We're going to fast and pray unto the Lord until you're all better. That's what they should be saying, right? Well, when we're sick, when we're hurt, when we're wronged, we want to be at the epicenter. We want the whole world to revolve around us. That's the natural human tendency. But let's look at Jesus. So it may not be a surprise to you seeing that Jesus is praying in the midst of the greatest suffering and trial of his life. But what is he praying for? If you didn't know what he was praying for and you had to guess what he was praying for, what would you guess? Maybe, Father, they nailed me to a piece of wood. I came to save them and now they're trying to kill me. Father, strike them dead. Let's start all over. Maybe he would pray that. Well, it would be an understandable prayer, but it seems very unlike Jesus. And so maybe he would pray, Father, I know that I have to endure the cross for the salvation of your people, but it's so difficult, it's so painful, and so will you please help me to be able to endure it? Well, that would be a really understandable prayer. But on the cross, he doesn't pray that either. During a time when it would be absolutely understandable and even expected of of even Jesus to be self-focused, what's he doing? He's being utterly others-focused. During a time when it would be completely understandable and even expected of Jesus to be self-focused, he's being utterly others-focused. Look at this prayer. His focus is on God And those who are killing him. Father, forgive them. Right? And what do we see in this other focused prayer? We see Jesus' humility. We see his divine condescension. By praying, Father, forgive them. The first and foremost wrong that he has in mind is not the wrong committed against him, but the wrong committed against God. Right? 
as if to say, Father, who cares about my holiness? Who cares about my righteousness? Look at your holiness. Look at your righteousness that's being offended right now. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. So how do we deal with being wronged, being sinned against? Well, Jesus shows us how. Well, first of all, we have to pray. Well, pray for what, though? First and foremost, have such a view of God's holiness and his righteousness that the wrong committed, you know that primarily that wrong is not against you, but it's against God. It's against God. Let's flesh this out. When someone comes to you and confess that they've lied to you, that they hurt you, that they've betrayed you in some way. Wives, let's say your husband is convicted by the Holy Spirit to come to you and confess to you that, that they've been looking at pornography. What do you do? How do you respond? Do you first and foremost have such a view of your own righteousness that you say, how dare you do that to me? How could you betray me like this? How could you hurt me like this? Or do you instead have such a view of his holiness, his righteousness, that you become broken up over the fact that your husband has wronged God, has wronged God. You know, if anybody could have rightly been, been wronged and offended against the, against the wrong done against him, it was Jesus, right? It was Jesus, but he didn't. He first and foremost cared about the restoration between the sinner and the father, between the sinner and the father, after all, that's why he came, right? No man comes to the Father but by me. That's what he first and foremost cares about. Well, how do we deal with being wronged? We pray not, oh God, this person has wronged me, hurt me, betrayed me, sinned against me, and so give me the strength to forgive them. But first and foremost, God, this person has wronged you, hurt you, sinned against you. Father, will you forgive them? And then what will happen? And then what will happen? Well, we'll realize that if God in his infinite holiness can forgive, how much more should we? We realize that, that if God would freely offer forgiveness with arms stretched out wide, not with arms crossed. If God would offer forgiveness with an embrace, not reluctantly saying, oh, well, we'll see. How much more should we? And we'll realize that this isn't just the way God forgives other people. This is the way that God forgives us. And then suddenly, something that was the most difficult thing in all the world to do becomes the most natural thing in all the world to do. And then suddenly, something that you once refused to do now becomes something that you're compelled to do. You can't think of anything else to do but to forgive because you've been forgiven, right? When you realize that Jesus was praying for you on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When you realize that Jesus was, was praying, not just for other people out there, but was praying for you, then and only then you'll be able to forgive. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. First of all, we see that it's a prayer. But let's go deeper and begin to see, the, the, see and feel the extent to which we've been forgiven. And so let's look deeper into this prayer of Jesus and ask two questions. Number one, for whom did Jesus pray for forgiveness? Who did he pray forgiveness for? And number two, 
When did Jesus offer this forgiveness? When did Jesus pray for forgiveness for us? Number one, for whom did Jesus offer this prayer for forgiveness? He offered it to those who did not know what they were doing. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? He didn't offer forgiveness to those who were repenting, those who were confessing and sorry for their sins, right? The Bible says while we were still God's enemies, he offered us forgiveness. Not after we've realized our wrongdoing and our sinfulness, but while we were still dead in our transgressions and sin, he offered us mercy and forgave us. You see, it's not our confession and repentance that births God's mercy, but it's God's mercy that births our confession and repentance. It's not because we confess and repent God is offering us forgiveness. God acts first. We act second. It's not that we first loved God, he first loved us. And so in light of the fact that we've been forgiven like this, how should we forgive? You know, many times our willingness to forgive is directly tied to the other person's ability to know how much wrong they've done, right? We're willing to forgive just as long as we see that this person truly knows how badly they messed up. We're willing to forgive as long as we see the sorrow and the remorse that they're feeling, right? Not, not before then are we willing to forgive. But think about this. If that's the way God viewed forgiveness, if that's the way God viewed forgiveness, would there be any salvation for us? If the only way that God would forgive us is if we truly realize the enormity of our sin, how badly we messed up. If the only way that God would forgive us is if we really showed a remorse and a sorrow the way that we ought. If the only way that God would forgive us is if we confess and repent just the right way. Would there be any forgiveness for us? Would there be any salvation for us? No. No. And so Jesus prays. He intercedes for us, not just when we're repenting, but especially when we're not. Especially when we don't know. Especially when we don't know the enormity of the wrong done against them. Especially when we are not confessing. And so someone has wronged you, but they don't know that they've wronged you. Or worse yet, someone has wronged you and they don't care that they've wronged you. They wanted to wrong you. In fact, the next chance that they get, they're going to wrong you again. Or you call to forgive this person. Not the wife who's been convicted and so is confessing to you the inappropriate relationship that she's had with another man, but the wife that doesn't care, the wife that doesn't see anything wrong with it, the wife that's most likely cheating on you, are you called to forgive her? Yes. Yes. Why? Because that's when God forgave you. When you didn't know when you didn't know the enormity of your sinfulness, when you didn't know how to confess, nor did you want to, when you didn't know how to repent, nor would you ever try to, when you were his enemy while you wanted nothing to do with Jesus, in the midst of you wronging him, every chance you got, God offered you mercy and forgave you. And so for whom did Jesus pray for forgiveness? Who did he pray for? For us. Not when we were sorry for our sins, but when we were happy in our sins. 
And when did Jesus offer this prayer for forgiveness? When did he do it? He prayed for forgiveness. Not a few years after the resurrection. He prayed for our forgiveness. Not a few years after the resurrection, once the wounds in his hands and his feet have healed. He prayed for our forgiveness not a few years after the resurrection, after the pain of being forsaken by the Father has now dimmed because of their restoration. Not a few years after things have gotten better, but in the very midst, at the very height of the pain, at the very height of the wrongdoing, he prayed. While the hammer was still warm with the stain of his blood, he was praying, Father, forgive them. That's when. Charles Spurgeon said, It was not a prayer for enemies who had done him an ill deed years before, but for those who were there and then murdering him. Not in cold blood did the Savior pray after he had forgotten the injury and could the more easily forgive it. But while the first red drops of blood were spurting on the hands which drove the nails, while yet the hammer was bestained with crimson gore, his blessed mouth poured out the fresh, warm prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If our Savior might have paused from intercessory prayer, it was surely when they fastened him to the tree. If Jesus was going to not pray for his people, it was surely when they're trying to kill him, right? When they were guilty of direct acts of deadly violence to his divine person, he might then have ceased to present petitions on their behalf. But sin cannot tie the tongue of our interceding friend. Oh, what comfort is here. You have sinned, believer. You have grieved his spirit, but you have not stopped that potent tongue which pleads for you. You see, church, I don't care what you've done. Some of you are saying, but I don't think you understand the wrong, the sin that I've committed. I don't think God could forgive me. But I want you to listen, church. Your sin, your sin, no matter what it is, it has not stopped, it will not stop, and it cannot stop that potent tongue of Jesus which pleads for you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, you can't stop Jesus from praying for you, saying, Father, forgive them. And because God was willing to forgive us at the very height of our rebellion and sinning against him, because he didn't delay his forgiveness until we got our act together, right? He didn't delay. We can't delay our forgiveness either. We can't delay our forgiveness either. Angela and I, in our 11 years of marriage, we've, we've learned over the years how to deal with conflict. After about 11 years, we've learned how to deal with each other when we've hurt each other, wronged each other, sinned against each other. But it was not always so, especially year one of our marriage. I mean, we used to get into fights all the time, all the time. And one of the reasons why we got into so many fights was because I thought spiritual leadership meant every time Angela did anything wrong, I would confront her and fix her. That's what I thought spiritual leadership meant. And so for young husbands out there, if that's your view of spiritual leadership, let me just tell you very pastorally, you are stupid. Stop it. (laughs) Stop it. Okay? Um, One of the most epic fights that Angela and I have gotten into, I don't even remember what we were fighting about. I just knew we were fighting. 
and married couple, you understand that. You get into these huge fights. You don't even remember what you were fighting about. Well, we were in the, in the car uh, fighting in a parking lot of a mall in Fort Worth. That's where we're living. And we're fighting, and she had wronged me, hurt me in some way, and I'm just furious at her. We're fighting. And during the fight, I just hear this whisper in my heart, and I hear, you know what will really show her? You know what will really put her in her place and show her how much she's wronged you? Just, just get out of the car and start walking home. Just get out and start walking home. Well, I lived seven miles away. And, um, but this is how irrational you get. This is how irrational you are when you're sinning and when you're angry. I thought to myself, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm going to get out of the car. I'm going to walk home seven miles. So I get out. I slam the door. I'm just walking home. It's a beautiful sunny day. And I'm in shorts, T-shirt, and flip-flops. And you guessed it. Not even 20 steps into the walk, deep, dark clouds roll in. And I feel one big, fat, cold drop of rain plop right on my head. Drop after another drop after another drop until it's just absolutely storming. And I know exactly what's happening. I could almost audibly hear God say, what are you doing, you dummy? What are you doing right now? I I feel him confronting my angry, unforgiving heart, but I just don't care. And I told him at this moment, God, I don't, I don't care right now. I just want to be angry right now. I just want her to feel bad right now. I'd rather walk home in the rain seven miles than to forgive, right? And so I'm just walking. And my amazing, persistent wife, Angela, what she keeps doing is she keeps driving up next to the sidewalk, rolling down the window and just begging me to get back in the car. Please get in the car. Please get in the car. And I'm just completely, absolutely... Uh, uh, not even looking, just, just refusing and just looking straight and just, just walking, right? And <clears throat> the cars behind her keep honking. And so what she has to do is she has to drive off. She has to do a U-turn, turn around, do another U-turn, roll down the window. Please get in the car, please. She's asking me to forgive her and just over and over and over. She's, she does this about 10 times. Each time, stay the course. Don't look. <laughs> Unforgiveness. Angry right now, just walking, you know? And after about three or four miles into the walk, I'm just walking like this. You know, if you're ever driving in the rain and you see some guy in a shorts and a t-shirt just walking, you're wondering what's happening. That's probably what's happening. And uh, so I'm finally, I can't ignore God anymore. I can't ignore the cold anymore. And so I'm like, God, okay. The next time Angela pulls around, I'll get in the car. I'll get in the car. I promise, God. But she never comes back. <laughs> She never comes back. And so I walk the seven miles. I'm walking into our neighborhood, and I finally see Angela in her car. She hadn't stopped looking for me. She just lost track of where I was in the, in the storm. And I say, I'm sorry. She said she's sorry, and, and happy ending. No permanent damage done. We love each other. We have three kids. Um, but here's the deeper point to that story. As unforgiving as I was, it never crossed my mind that I would never forgive Angela. As unforgiving as I was, it never crossed my mind that that she's wronged me so much, I'm never going to forgive her. That wasn't my attitude. My attitude wasn't, I'm never going to forgive her. My attitude was, I'm not going to forgive her right now. You guys relate with that? 
Get in a fight with your spouse, your friend, your family member. And your attitude isn't, I'm never going to forgive. Your attitude is, I'm not going to forgive right now. I'm just too angry right now. I just want to be angry right now. I just want them to feel bad for a little while or for a long while, right? Just not right now. I'll forgive later, not right now. But remember, Jesus didn't wait to forgive you. He didn't wait until after things got better and you straightened up your act. He didn't wait to forgive you until you've sufficiently felt bad for what you've done. He prayed for our forgiveness when we were not sorry, when we were not repenting, and when we were height of our sin and rebellion. And if you've been forgiven like this, you have to forgive other people like this. That's the hard saying of Jesus. That's the hard saying of the scriptures. If you've been forgiven in a manner like this, you have to forgive other people like this. I know there are some of you here and you're like, Holland, but you don't understand. I've had an injustice in my life to the extent that you will never know. Someone has abandoned me. Someone has, someone has abused me. They've ruined my life. Someone has left me. They've cheated on me. They've, they've divorced me. You'll never know. And you do. You have a legitimate complaint. And right now as you sit, you still bear the scars and the consequences of that injustice. I'll never know. But somebody knows. Somebody knows the level of the injustice you've gone through. Somebody else still bears the scars of the consequence of that injustice. So I don't understand, church, but Jesus understands. And here's the thing. You'll never look more like Jesus when you experience a radical injustice and you breathe out radical forgiveness. You'll never look more like Jesus when you encounter a radical injustice upon your life and you breathe out and you offer radical forgiveness. That's when you know that the gospel of Jesus has truly taken root in your heart. That's when it starts smelling like the kingdom of God around here, when his people starts radically forgiving because they've been radically forgiven, right? After... Our friend Ronnie was killed in Libya. All the news outlets, they wanted, to, they wanted to tell the story. And they were trying to reach out to anybody, anybody that had any connection with Ronnie. And, but the person they wanted to interview most was Anita, his wife. And as a church, we wanted to care for her by shielding her from all the media, by giving her some time to heal and to process. But Anita, she wanted to have the interviews right away. She wanted to meet with the media right away. Do you know why? Because she said she desperately wanted the murderers to know that she forgives them and she loves them. Because she said she desperately wanted the murderers to know the love and forgiveness of Jesus. Radical injustice met by radical forgiveness. As Christians, we should be the most forgiving people on all the earth. We should forgive no matter what the sin, because no matter what our sin, God forgave us. One last quick thing I want us to see, and then we'll be done. What else do we see in this prayer? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We see that it was a costly prayer. 
we see that it was a costly prayer. Because you see, every other time that Jesus goes to forgive in his ministry, what did he do? Every other time there was a sinner and Jesus wanted to forgive them, what did he do? Well, he said, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven you. That's how he forgave sins. But as he's hanging on the cross, he doesn't simply say, your sins are forgiven. Instead, he asks. Instead, he prays, Father, will you forgive them? Why? Why? Because on the cross, the Bible says, Jesus is becoming sin. We see a divine condescension. We see him laying down his divine authority and and prerogative to forgive. He's considering his equality with God something not to be grasped. He who knew no sin is becoming sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was a costly prayer that required a great price. It was a prayer that Jesus offered up to his father in his most humiliated state. It was an interceding for us on our behalf that Jesus offered up to the Father in his most lowly state. But what did the Father do? Even though it was coming from such a lowly state, what did the Father do? He answered the prayer. He answered the prayer. Every person that has ever been saved or will ever be saved owes their salvation to this prayer of Jesus because the Father was faithful to answer this prayer. But I want you to think about this. Here's the final assurance of forgiveness that God is offering us in Jesus. Do you struggle with knowing and believing and feeling that you've been forgiven by God? This is the final assurance that he's giving us. If God was willing to answer the prayer of Jesus, even though Jesus was becoming the filth of sin on the cross, How much more now that he's exalted, perfectly pure and holy and righteous, seated at his right hand? How much more now? If God was willing to answer the prayer, they're interceding on our behalf for us on the cross while we were his enemies, how much more now that we're his kids? How much more now? See, the hard work of the cross is already done. The hardest prayer in all the world that God could answer has already been answered. Now it's just easy. Do you know that Jesus is still interceding for you? The Bible says he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Every time we sin, Jesus is like, Father, forgive them. I know they messed up, but I pay for that. I pay for that. Father, forgive them. And if he answered Jesus' prayer while he was the filth of sin, how much more? Now that he is exalted, holy, and righteous, seated at his right hand. If he was willing to forgive us uh, when we were in the depths, while we were his enemies, killing his son, how much more now that we're his children? And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've never trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. You've never trusted Jesus for your salvation. Hear the invitation of Jesus as he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you hear it as a prayer prayed for you? Do you hear it as a prayer prayed for you? Do you feel the Holy Spirit telling you, you know, when Jesus prayed that, he prayed that for you. When he was hanging on the cross, he had you in mind. He was asking God for your forgiveness. Do you want to trust him like this? 
If you do, right after the service, I invite you to come up to the front. There will be elders and counselors here who would love to meet with you, love to pray for you. Now, church, if we've been forgiven in a depth and an extent like this by our Heavenly Father, I want you to pray. As the band comes up, they're going to play for a little bit. I want you to pray and ask God this simple prayer, but a hard prayer. God, who are you calling me to forgive? God, you've forgiven me like this. Who are you calling me to forgive? And whoever that person is, no matter what they've done, pray and ask God that he will give, give you the grace to forgive that person today. Today. Don't delay. Jesus didn't delay. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, your mercy, your offer of forgiveness. We thank you for your son. We marvel at him. He is absolutely beautiful in all the ways that he has obeyed you, all the ways that he is so faithful and gracious to us and interceding for us when we're in the midst of our sin, when we're not confessing, when we have hard hearts, when we refuse to forgive others. He is so faithful. And we can feel him now, even now interceding on our behalf. And Lord, in light of the way that we've been forgiven, will you bring to mind those that we have not yet forgiven? Will you bring to mind those that we still hold the bitterness against? We bring to mind those that we have not yet forgiven in the way that you have forgiven us. And Lord, will you give us the grace? Will you give us the faith to be able to forgive that person today? Will you bring healing today, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.